All right. Um, so I presume today, based on where we've been before here, remember I'm a, a pinch hitter here for a couple of months. Uh, we're going to begin with uh, topic lesson number three today. So let's go ahead and read before we go ahead and look at this Titus 1, 5 through 9. So would someone like to read, please? J.D., you got your Bible open? I do. I just had to find my mute button. Titus um, 5 through 9. Yeah, 5 through 9. Titus. This, go, go ahead, please. Yep. Okay. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, <clears throat> having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, that he will be able to... Uh, he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. All right. Thank you very much. So, issue or question number three, there are two synonyms designation of church leadership. Name them and discuss the difference. So, we see one mentioned in, in Titus verse 5 and another one in verse 7. And then we're going to look in parallel to Acts 20, verses 17 and 28. So let's, J.D., go ahead and read the verse 5 again for us, please. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay, in verse 7. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Okay, so what what words do we see there that describe church leadership in verses 5 and 7? No, we see uh, bishop, steward, overseer, depending on the translation. Okay. How might those differ, or how might they be similar? Let's let's just, for a parallel section of Scripture, turn to Acts 20, verses 17 and 28. So someone here in the class, Beatty's contributed substantially already, uh, read verses 17 and 28 in Acts chapter 20. From the leaders... He sent to Ephesus and called in them the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. No, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly 
and from house to house. All right, so in verses 5 of chapter 1 of Titus and verse 17 in Acts 20, the Greek term is presbyteros, which I think kind of outlines the idea of age and maturity, but this is used for elders. And an elder, we're going to maybe discuss in more detail, is certainly one put in a position of church leadership. All right, and then in verse 7 of Titus 1 and in verse 28 of Acts 20, that term is episkopos. And that really, I think, puts more emphasis on authority or supervision. So what do you think about all these verses? And we're going to confuse this a little further in a second in First Peter 2.25. But what, what are we making of these verses? Are these the same kind of oversight? I mean, one, one, basically, the, the one that's in verse 7 can maybe better be interpreted overseers. That's another term that Cheryl mentioned. So, is this distinguishing these two types of elders, bishops, overseers, or is this one and the same and exchangeable? What do you think? Um, good question. God, it's interesting that they use two terms that don't exactly uh, define the same thing, but there's a different emphasis. And because of that, um, like in Acts 20-28, the emphasis is... Thanks, Dave. The emphasis is more on supervision and authority, and... Uh, but I think an elder's got to really have all of the qualities, except I'm thinking back in my experience as an elder. Uh, like, like when Al was alive, I think we looked to him as an elder elder. In other words, he had more time and grade and experience and Presbyteros really applies age and maturity, um, but go ahead and keep, keep your thought going. Now. Yeah, so um, because, uh, you know, uh, you don't, how do I say this? You don't learn to be an elder and then you become one. You become one, and that in and of itself is a learning process, although these requirements uh, need to be in place ahead of time. But let's turn to the organized mainline Protestant church where we have, you know, bishops and who oversee regions of the church. And ultimately, we have pastors who may or may not be called elders. I mean, do you think scripture distinguishes these two adequately, these various terms, uh, episcopos versus um, um, pres, presby, uh, <laughs> uh, presbyteros? Do you think those adequately distinguish these two roles other than age and maturity? For the first. Well, the one thing, the one thing that I've noticed in, in, uh, especially in Titus and in Timothy too, is that the church is local. And I can't find in scripture, um, the need for a bishop who's over a bunch of churches and then, a, then somebody above him who's over a bunch of bishops and then a final guy who's sort of the head of everything and, or a council that determines the direction of a whole bunch of churches. Paul seems to think that, you know, he's 
unique in that his ministry was starting and establishing churches. And Titus and Timothy had a different uh, role to play in, the st- in appointing elders and that kind of thing. But outside of that authority structure, I think it's all local. Yeah, so in a sense, Titus and Timothy fit the qualifications of someone who oversees a region in church development, doesn't yeah. it? And perhaps he also oversees the uh, the doctrine and the theology being taught in those churches. But in fact, we don't see that well-grounded in terms of church structure, do we? No. no. But the elder we're going to describe in much more detail in the verses that follow. Other thoughts about this, everybody? Let's turn to 1 Peter 2.25, and now we're going to give a little twist to this. And by the way, think back about, somebody keep the Bible open to Acts 20.28. So everybody else from one person, whomever you select yourself, <laughs> keep the, your, at least your thumb in Acts 20.28. So someone read 1 Peter 2.25. You were continually straying like sheep. And now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Interestingly enough, shepherd, which Greek term is that? Anybody want to address that in their interlinear here? Joanne, do you have that? Which Greek term that is? No, I guess I would say it's Episcopos. And what's Episcopos? Well, Episcopos is one that really uh, does not imply age or maturity, but in fact, and here the term is shepherd, isn't it? And what's it in Acts 20.28? What term is used for church leadership in Acts 20.28? Elder? It's, a, it's Episcopos, overseer. Yes, same Greek term. But here it's interpreted shepherd. And I think the implications here is if we think of shepherding, we think of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we think of the local church, who's, who's the shepherd of us here? The, the Mike and Roger, right? Mm-hmm. So... What we're looking at here is a bit of confusion in terms of the interpretation of church structure, but I think to a large extent these terms are somewhat interchangeable. I mean, we think of our pastors, our elders, as truly being our shepherds locally. The Lord Jesus Christ is ultimately the shepherd of each of our lives individually, is he not? And for the church. But yet, as we think of church structure, I don't think we can overinterpret these terms exactly in terms of way the mainline church today orchestrates their church administration. Other thoughts? One of the thoughts I had on that was, you know, the elders seem to be focused on the body and and the education and the doctrine to the body. Mm-hmm. But then there's also um, uh, multiple elders. You know, there's they okay. can't say just to have one elder. And I think the elders keep each other um, accountable in doctrine, in in all sorts of ways. Mike, what about that? That's right. 
Okay. Tell us about your elder meetings, either with Hal and Byrne or with and now just Roger and you. I have, I have an elder meeting with Roger every Tuesday at 9 o'clock, uh, a Zoom meeting. And then that half hour to an hour that we talk, we discuss uh, document first. That we talk about the sermons that we've given or that are coming up and what do you think about this and what do you think about that kind of thing. Or, you know, I think also we'll say, well, did you happen to read what so-and-so said about this? And that was the same mm-hmm. with, uh, with uh, Vern and with, uh, I'm sorry. That's the same with Vern and with uh, Hal, uh, although, uh, I, when Hal was alive, I considered myself a junior elder. <laughs> Because the guy had such great wisdom that, uh, you know, I just listened to what the, what he had to say. But the idea is, is to get, is to, you know, be dependent on the spirit and track correctly. Okay. Um, rightly dividing the word of truth, yeah, right? That's, that's really important. what the goal is for each one of us yeah, as and, believers. And that's the focus. That's where our focus is all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know, we... We have other issues that we'll talk about, but primarily the issue every week is doctrinal. Okay, and and so that's doctrinal to the extent of your own lives, but also in terms yeah. of the body, right? Yeah. And so that's where the shepherding aspects really comes in, isn't it? Yes, it does. And you're shepherding a flock here. The yeah. flock is manageable, isn't it, in terms of numbers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway... But some churches might have seven or eight elders if it was a huge church, sure. right? Sure. And so, I think it's, I'm going to opine here. It gets a little more complicated when it's a big church because you've got a lot of people to oversee. All right, good. I, I have a question. Yeah, J.D., go ahead. Yeah, so are, can we agree that the word elder and overseer are synonymous terms? We, did we land on that? Well, the, the, the term that's best described as overseer is uh, episkopos. So that Greek term has been translated overseer in some versions. The other term, yeah, that one is, has not been interpreted as overseer. So to some right. extent, I think uh, I think we can get confused by overly interpreting the Greek in terms of those terms. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think they're, I mean, in the context of Titus there, they're synonymous to the same person yeah. and group of people. Overseer is not plural. However, it doesn't, it doesn't imply that it's a singular role. Mm-hmm. And whereas elders is, 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 is plural. So, mm-hmm. um, but they both are synonymously talking about and over, overlap in terms of those qualifications, which bu- builds out what we get in those qualifications from Titus and first, uh, you know, first and second Timothy and so forth. Um, so that being said, I, I see them as synonymous in context, talking about the same group of men who have this function of uh, writing what is in chaos. So organizing what is in chaos, doctrinally speaking, mm-hmm. and then also shepherding and overseeing. And so one of the, what, where my question was going to come is, a lot of times, even when you have a plurality of elders in a church, let's call it even a Bible church, you might have one elder that is set apart for teaching. They would call him the teaching elder, so to speak. Does that mean that the shepherding role is exempt from certain elders in a plurality? Well, because you have you seen that before or heard have heard of that in certain 
No, but I think the way you stated that is perfectly clear. Okay. So, so let's turn to our elder in terms of that. Uh, I mean, we can only think about our own body of believers here. We can't extend beyond that. But JD's point, you understood, right? Uh, one yeah. who's more involved in uh, the uh, definite teaching role and someone who's well, less involved in that, maybe overseeing more of the doctrine. So. I think as we get into the qualification of elders, teaching mm-hmm. is part of the qualification right. process. You've got to be able to communicate the word. Uh, now, granted, some, some people uh, are much better teachers than others. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a skill maybe... Uh, that, but but what I've noticed is is that certain elders appeal to different people. I've noticed that a lot. That, that and Roger and I will talk about that. We'll have some something will come up where one of us has to go talk to somebody about an issue. Not a, you know nothing, no discipline, just talk about it. Mm-hmm. And and we look at each other and like, oh yeah, you're better. Why don't you do it? Yeah, okay, I'll do it. Kind of thing. Yeah. It isn't. Well, just the experience in teaching multiple years here, I've had the privilege the Lord has given me that responsibility. We always know that the teacher learns more than the class. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible true. how being in the Word to teach is really a responsibility. But just turning more recently to our James class, I mean, the teaching skills of Andrew and, and Roger and Roy when he contributes are quite different. Yeah, the message are. always gets across, but the teaching styles are different. And some people may prefer one versus another, but as long as we're rightly dividing the word of truth, let the Bible speak sure. to what it stands for, right? So, Well, you, in my experience with Miles Stanford, he, he said he had two jobs, and he wasn't an elder. He was to feed the sheep and protect them. Yeah. And I think uh, a shepherding is feeding process and protecting process. Well, my communication with Miles was unfortunately very brief. The Lord <laughs> took him home too early. But anyway, the one thing I remember about Miles is when I asked him, Miles, I was just a new believer at that point, growing in grace and truth. And I said, Miles, how do you pray? Mm-hmm. And you know what his answer was? That's a very good question, Bob. <laughs> that was his answer. <laughs> no answer. <laughs> so that, that's Miles' style, right? Yeah, I mean, he, what he did, it was, uh, he yeah. cracked the door and he didn't crack it open much more, well, but enough to say, you know, there's no right way to pray. I mean, I think you prayed by the Holy Spirit the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But anyway, he, he, he didn't even give me that. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts about these various roles of church leadership? I think we can conclude that the elder is going to be described in great detail coming up, but I think to distinguish the elder from an overseer, etc., is probably not necessary. I and mean, we have to look at biblical history and that the role of Paul was ultimately to point individuals to, to, to form churches. And beyond that, we have no definition about the, such a role going forward. So, All right, let's turn to verse 6, and this is where the meat really <laughs> begins here. I think this is really quite interesting. So, what's the first qualification? Oh, four? Uh, this is question number four. Yeah. yeah. We're talking about verse six, my yeah. bad. Okay, what's the first qualification in this verse, and what does it mean? First qualification. So, let's read verse six. If any be blameless... Or above reproach is another translation, right? 
What's that mean? How many, no. how many, how many around here are, well, let's turn to our elders. No, no let's not think of that. <laughs> what's it, what's it mean to be blameless? I, I looked it up in the, you know, well, whatever, anyway. It's unquestionable integrity is one, one definition. Unquestionable integrity. How do we measure but that? But not perfect, because <laughs> nobody's perfect. <laughs> Except Christ and God. Yeah. I have um, just this idea of none of the charges stick. You can't make anything stick to that guy. It doesn't mean <laughs> that the charges are, the charges don't, they come, but they don't stick, right? You sound like a judge or a lawyer. I'm not sure which. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I guess the question comes up because, you know, this question really deals with being blameless or without reproach or above reproach as, a necessary initial qualification, and what follows subsequently are all all the issues that relate to being blameless. Yeah. So maybe rather than spending a lot of time here, although I, I guess I'd like to turn to two separate verses. Margaret, would you look at First Corinthians one eight, please? And Donna, how about First Timothy three ten? Let's look at these two verses which deal with the same same term. First Corinthians one eight. Don't you say? Yes, ma'am. Yes. All right. Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how would we interpret blameless there? What do you think? In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, without defining the day, <laughs> is it the rapture? Is it uh, you know the second so coming, or is it ultimately the yeah. eternal heaven and earth? When I you, mean, let's not. Get, when you stand before the okay. Lord, I mean, I think when you stand before the Lord. And when Margaret stands before the Lord, what are your credentials? Being justified by God. Justified by what, Russ? By God. Well, justified by faith, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, by grace, you're saved I mean, through faith, not of ourselves. What, what I was meaning is God declares us righteous. Okay. Yeah, re- remember always Second Corinthians 5, 21, For he hath made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might yeah. be made the righteousness of God in him. So when we go blameless at the day of the Lord, however we want to go, I don't want to deal with that topic here right now, but you are standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this blameless interpreted here in Titus 1.6 cannot mean that. I mean, blameless relates to, I think, who said that, which was a uh, J.D. Integrity or uh, who's Cheryl, I Cheryl think that's what that. you said. Cheryl, read that definition again. Okay, just uh, unquestionable. Integrity. One other thing too that I found it says no charge of false doctrine or irregular behavior can be proved against them. Okay, and again the details of that are going to follow here. First Timothy three ten, Donna. And let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Okay, now how see how are we interpreting blameless there? Are we interpreting in terms of God's righteousness, where we stand positionally and eternally? Or are we talking about what we're talking about in Titus, what Titus is referring to? What do you think? But don't you think they're assuming that if you're in the body, you're already blameless? Uh, I mean, 
I mean, no, you're blameless in the well, Lord. Positionally, you're blameless. <laughs> blameless. So I don't Conditionally, think there could be issues that are brought up in Titus here that we're going to get to. Exactly. But I don't think it's talking about blameless in the Lord. I think it's talking about on the earth. Wow. You are blameless in in the body. Well, that's why I had you and Donna look up these verses, because I think the interpretation of blameless is different positionally right. than it is conditionally, yes, right? It is. Well, and My, Bob, uh, under Zodianus, yes. uh, what, what he says here, um, not merely unchargeable at all, or let's see, um, not merely unaccusable, but unaccused, free from any legal charge at all. Legal. Yeah. Is that biblical, that uh, Old sounds, Testament legal, or is that? <laughs> it almost sounds earthly. It, it yeah. really does. Yeah, and earthly. I agree. Yeah, that's yeah. Other well, thoughts on I, this distinction here? I think Margaret's right in terms of this is um, all of these qualifications are conditional; they're not positional. That's right. But they start positionally. Yeah. You can't. A man is not going to be blameless if he isn't positioned right. In other words, you couldn't, you could not find a non-believer fit any of these qualifications. But you know, that's where Paul makes this very simple. For me to live is Christ, right? So that relates to the position translated into our condition. And one of the guys I read said that, you know, you have to understand that this description of an elder doesn't mean that elders are super Christians. <laughs> you know, yeah. that they that they rise above the sheep that yeah. they are associated with. They're they're human beings, they have sin natures. Uh it it, it almost puts a uh, an emphasis on dependency. Mm-hmm. You know, that they recognize that uh, you know, I'm, if not more so, as dependent as anybody that's involved in the flock that I'm in. Any other thoughts here? Blameless at the right hand of God is all the Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Blameless here relates to our walk. And elders must walk blamelessly in terms of the condition of their their life and how they're viewed by their fellow believers. I have a question. For the class for the class. Um is this only a qualification for elders or is it <laughs> That's a good point, JD. Okay, JD, we're we're gonna ignore that question. Let's go on. <laughs> no, I think we're all called to this, but I, I think right. the elders are in a position to oversee the body, are they not? I mean, that's one of Roger and Mike's responsibilities when there are people who are not blameless because of various issues. That needs to be brought to your attention. And when the Lord leads you, you need to deal with that, right? That's church discipline, is it not? Yeah, I think so. And the other thing it points up is that uh, it's from the time that a person is saved to where he approaches qualification for this uh, leadership position or overseer position is is going to be a while. You don't uh, do four years in seminary and then come out and somebody hangs an elder around your neck because that you're not ready. Yeah, you know. So JD, in a sense, has gone on to uh, question number five or item number five. Must elder candidates have these qualifications above all believers? Mm-hmm. 
what if we kind of have skirted around that question a little bit, but I, I think we said, we said the elder must be identified based on this, but I don't think any of us are judging one another as to whether they're falling short here. I mean, first of all, that's the work of the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then ultimately, if this unbelieving manifestation where people are blamed, that's really the elder's job if it's brought to their attention. Other thoughts about that? Well, you know, I was thinking about these big churches that have all these different elders. And through the years, you always hear of these terrible things that, you know, happen in these big churches where these elders have maybe abused their power or um, their position would be a better term. And so I, I think, you know, what it shows is that just as you've said, elders are not above reproach and they're not above. I mean, well, they're supposed to be above reproach well, from your scripture. <laughs> but yeah, but they're but they're as Mike points out, they still have a sin nature and. Um, you know, until we're with the Lord, everybody has a sin nature and anything is possible. But I think it, it puts a bad light on, um, elders. I think, you know, throughout, you know, we, we, we've all heard these terrible things that have happened in a lot of churches. And, you know, I think it, it puts a, a big burden on those elders. Let me go on a rabbit trail here a second. I think there are two major themes of rightly dividing the word of truth. I mean, we all know we're saved by grace through faith. I mean, that, let's establish that. But first is understanding positional truth. Mm-hmm. And that relates to the exchange life that follows. And the second thing, which I think is poorly taught, and I haven't been to many other churches, so I don't know, but I think we hold scripture to its truth in saying the sin nature never changes. And the idea that you're buffing up the old man is what many, I mean, many churches think that somehow that old nature goes away as you grow in grace and truth. So I think those two things really represent this to some extent here in terms of the entire church JD. I think we're all called to the same kind of life that the elder is called to, except these men are called because it's exemplary that their life is above reproach. Mike? I did, um, that note that I put in here that what Chester Macaulay says. I yeah, why don't you? I was going to read that, but you go but ahead. Before, you, before I say that, um, I don't see how a, a, a person who is aspiring to be an elder can be one if he's law based, because okay. the law makes sin stronger, and you can't be a legal beagle, so to speak, and and fit the parameters of being an elder because if you're under a law system, you're having a much greater struggle with sin than a person who's under grace. Well, this is the life of Romans 7, is it, it is. not? I mean, it effectively is. what you're describing. Yeah. And so to have an environment where, where you're, what you're teaching and what you're trying to do yourself is law based and all it does is make sin worse or sin, you know, where grace, sin abounded, grace abounded more, fine. Mm-hmm. But being under a law system means that sin is abounding in all aspects uh, of the qualifications. And so no wonder that uh, 
the word of God in terms of understanding grace and position and condition is not very well taught these days. Well, I think that's why we gather here. Yeah. Right. Because that is well taught. All right. Why don't you go ahead and you brought it up. Why don't you read how Macaulay describes this? Yeah. I thought this was really good. A quick look at the concordance shows that many elder deacon qualifications are expected of all believers. That's what JD said. Right. Does the listing of qualification mean that an elder must have these things in greater abundance than others? If so, who is to be the judge? <laughs> I love that. Or is Paul simply saying that whatever whoever is appointed as an elder must possess these qualities in a reasonable to a reasonable degree? The term reasonable is a kind of a, yeah. a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> But the, I mean, well, but see, that implies that the sin nature is still there, sure. right? But we're led by the Spirit, yeah. and it's a new life we live in Christ Jesus. It's not the old man being able to respond to law by getting better. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I think any any position you're called to to serve in a church, you know, these these apply. You 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 know, mm-hmm. I, I watch the guys around here like Bill and and Phil and others. You know, I mean, they're they make good decisions and they do really cool stuff because the spirit of God leads them. Mm-hmm. You know. So uh, do you want to read the next paragraph too or do you want me to? Go ahead. Okay, so this is Macaulay also and uh, I'm quoting him now. The word above reproach is anaglottos, which literally means out, not called in. Interesting, not called in. It refers to one against with, it refers to one against whom no valid charge of misconduct can be judged. The quality must be understood in a relative sense. In a sense, duplicating what was just read. Proof of this is found in the use of this word to describe the believer's glorified state is found in 1 Corinthians 1.8 that Margaret LeBrand and Colossians 1.22, which we did not read, which is, they're translated blameless and beyond reproach, respectively, Macaulay. So blameless beyond reproach is used uh, identically for the same Greek term. So. All right. It's 9.42. Should we begin with question number six? Sure. Let's do six, and I'll pick up next week with seven if we complete six. All right, what does the husband of one wife mean? Uh, okay. <laughs> Only one ever fun or, t- or one at a time. Why, what's JD? Are, are you, go ahead. You have three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, this should be easily answered within three minutes, I hope. Uh, yeah. So this does not apply to the Mormon church, correct? <laughs> Although I guess that habit is largely discontinued. I don't know. No, yeah, Margaret says no. And by the way, just on the side, has anyone read Under the Banner of Heaven ever? Or you want that whole body opened up for whatever work. But anyway, so, um, so interestingly enough, there's a modifier of husband in the original Greek text. And I went back just to check this out, and it's true. It's husband of one wife, not the husband of one wife. So how should we think about that? In fact, the best interpretation is a one wife husband. 
I mean, that's the literal translation in the original Greek. At the time this was written, there were many um, cultures that had multiple wives. Well, look at biblical history. That's what I <laughs> mean. In the Old this Testament, was, right? Yeah, sure. multiple wives was pretty common. But I think what this is saying is one husband and one wife at a time. This I is church-age stuff. Yeah. Well, then the question applies to someone who has been married more than once. Well, sure, divorce. Yeah. I mean, Margaret's right. been married. I'm her fourth husband. Yeah. But Al gave us no barriers to loving one another and getting yeah. married. And I've been privileged well, to have her for friend. 28 years in my life. <laughs> <laughs> So, so I, you know, actually, there was a controversy in this church when I was first invited to be an elder. A couple of men left the church because of that issue. You know, and Hal, Hal and Byrne, to their credit, went and counseled with these guys, and they ended up coming back. Uh, and you know, um, well, talk about applying law. Yeah. To grace. There it is. And yeah. So you're a one wife man, right? Yeah. yeah. Like how used to say one at a time. <laughs> one at a time. We'll talk privately a little later about that. Okay. So JD, did we accomplish the addressing questions six here? Or the one I added? Oh, yeah. No, you're, you're good. I don't struggle with this one. Um, but there are a lot of people that do. Yeah, I think we're all comfortable with that interpretation here, and we've been served well by uh, by Mike's service here. Uh, next week, we're getting into a very interesting topic, and, and that's can a candidate have kids that are out of control? <laughs> Talk about a hot kettle, right? <laughs> like our new coffee maker. The coffee stays hot for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> this is really going to be fun next week, which hopefully the spirit will lead us through that conversation. And I got a feeling that we may only be able to cover issue number seven next week. So uh, let, let's close in prayer. J.D., would you close us, please? Yes. <clears throat> Father, how we thank you um, for the fact that you communicated those things that are important for those that would uh, oversee the church, that uh, would teach the church, that would shepherd us. And so, Father, we're thankful for those men uh, that you have uh, called into this role and uh, for those that are uh, for those of us that are continuing to grow and learn, um, Father, we thank you that it is a growing intimacy with you that is a result of that knowledge and the, the union that we have in, in you ultimately, and that these these uh, truths apply to each of us in, 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 in the life of Christ. And so, Lord, we just pray uh, for the rest of this week uh, that you would guide and direct us uh, and that we would depend upon you for our very life. And it's your name we pray. Amen.